Omnibus is a production of iHeartRadio. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is The Omnibus. Accessed entry 138.AC1631, certificate number 39322. He preached the truth and the way and the life. He said he'd come to, to give life and life more abundantly. He's talking about life. Bob Dylan's Christian, period. Bob Dylan's Christian, period. That's my Juice for Jesus t-shirt that I wear. <laughs> uh, am I wrong in thinking that we have been a little hard on Bob Dylan on the omnibus? Like, if, if your only source about the 20th century is these series of recordings, wouldn't you just think that... Because we've just said that he's a dick in... Uh, in uh, what? Don't look back. Right. He is terrible in Don't Look Back. He's mean to reporters. He's mean to Donovan. He's mean to Donovan dressed as a reporter wearing a hat with a label that says press in it. I think it's easy to be hard on Dylan because he's so lionized. He Everyone that should have been hard on him wasn't. You're punching up, basically. Yeah, that's right. When you punch Bob Dylan. My, my friend David Reese, who is a uh, world-famous anti-skeptic, who, who truly believes. He's a true believer. He, he wrote the uh, comic Get Your War On. Oh, right. But he is of the opinion that the death of Bob Dylan will more than any other pop star be the one that... That, that irritates Gen X and up. No, it will, it, will, it will demarcate the change. When Dylan dies, everything goes with him. Voice so, of his generation. That's right. So every single publication will have it on the front page. It will be like Lady Diana. There, but except there will be seven million times more critical reappraisal of his catalog and his significance. We've already lost two Beatles. I mean, we we have the experience. Well, and so that's the argument against this idea of Dylan is well, no, Paul McCartney really is the bigger, but he says no, 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 no. We've already lost two Beatles. McCartney will get, you know, he'll get a good send-off. He will probably outlive Ringo at least. 
Hard to know though. Ringo just. Do you have a plan? Ringo <laughs> just pieces his way through everything. Ringo looks younger every time I see a picture yeah. of him. What's he doing? I don't know. Ringo could be. I mean, Ringo has never exerted himself. Least of all, playing the drums. Shouldn't in the you? Beatles. But if you want to live a long time, shouldn't you play a little tennis or something? I mean, he still gets out, but I guess Paul McCartney does too. Paul still does three and a half hour shows. Paul's a vegetarian. Paul's a vegetarian. And Paul did fewer drugs. Oh, well, Paul would argue that no, he was right there doing the drugs. That's one of the one of the things about Paul is that he he has very little sense of how it looks when someone praises John Lennon and he has to step in and say, Well, you know, well you knew I did it too. I was there too. <laughs> what is that voice? Uh, that was not a so, good so who's, Paul voice. So who's the last it, it depends on who the last Beatle will be. Like if Ringo is the last Beatle, then you know, nobody's gonna be <laughs> Beating their breast and putting on sackcloth and ass. I mean, for Ringo. Will, he'll be on the cover of Time, probably. But yeah, it's not. Time will not exist. There's not possibly the concept know. of time will not exist. <laughs> but Paul, time will be a flat circle. I think the Paul staple has, will be in the middle. That's right. That's right. Time, uh, time will be a Mobius strip clock. Newsweek will be a flat circle. Uh, the uh, the thing about Paul is we already know we've already evaluated Paul all the way. But Dylan remains a mystery. He's an enigma. He really is. Uh, did you read the story? It wasn't that long ago that he got picked up by the cops in some, um, in some like New Jersey beach town, like a blue collar beach town, just because he was walking around late at night in a hoodie, just peeping in windows, and the somebody called the cops on this weirdo, and they they, came, they came and grabbed you know picked him up, and he was like, oh, it's Bob Dylan. <laughs> And he was just like, oh, yeah, I was out for a walk or whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, this is what I like to do. <laughs> well, on the one hand, I like an uh, old white person getting arrested just for wearing a hoodie. Seems, right. seems only fair. Sure. But also, why is he looking in windows? I mean, I... It just wants material it for might, his music? It might have been just one of those small towns where the houses are close to the street, so you can't help but look in the windows. What if his next album is all like songs from New Jersey living rooms? And they're watching American Idol, but they were watching it on Devo. You know, the those New Jersey beach towns are like, it's like, a, they're blue collar places. Springsteen territory. Springsteen yeah. probably called the cops. Yeah, he was like, he's like hey. hey. <laughs> he's like, hey, Bob, come over. And then he's like, hey, there's going to be this weirdo on the corner of. <laughs> well, Springsteen is part of that generation of artists that we forget were. Dylan ripoff artists. Dylan is, uh, in the period we're going to be discussing in the early 80s, a lot of Dylan's uh, onstage comments are like, uh, well, that's what they say about Springsteen. Like, he's obviously clearly, like, the idea that there's a new Dylan topping the charts really looms large. And I think there's a story of him meeting the boss and saying, hey, what's the line? I'm going to script the line. Are we going to call him the boss? Is that, is, <laughs> is that, is that how you're going to play this episode that's out? Every, every, every time we refer to Springsteen, you're like, well. Or, the, as I call him. The boss. The chairman of the board. <laughs> <laughs> and he says something, I think he says something to the Springsteen like, ah, I used to be you, or something like that. Well, I mean, if you think about it. No, I know, I, I got it, I got it. I'll well, tell the story correctly. Go ahead, go ahead. I hear you're the new me. Oh, you're the new me. I hear you're the Ooh, new me. That's a kick in the pants. That's a little cutting, Bob. But when, And especially by 1980, he'd been the new Bob for like eight years right. by then. But if you think about him with his beard and his floppy hat and his like. And his fake middle American uh, working man thing. Yeah, the, the like long songs with multiple verses where there's never really a, it never resolves about people getting in their car. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a more working class Dylan. My take about 
Springsteen is that he is deeply cheesy. Oh, ooh, you're coming out just full swinging at the boss. And I have been told by Springsteen fans that is not a fair take. But really, I mean, when when you think of the appeal of this guy, you know, ever you know, the fans will lionize, you know, the stripped down spare lyrics of instrumentation of Nebraska right. or the social commentary on, you know. But, uh, you know, to see him in concert where he's kind of yucking it up with Clarence and there's big cheesy saxophone solos. Cla- Clarence is gone now. Of course, we can't we can't besmirch his memory. It's Clarence's son. Did you know that? Yeah. Yeah, the new sax guy's Clarence's son. How great yeah. is that? It's great. I love when that happens. It's just like when Zach Starkey plays in <laughs> Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Can you imagine Time Magazine when <laughs> Zach Starkey dies? <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so, but Dylan is not cheesy. If, you know, you can't say that. I don't know. That's the problem with Dylan. What can you say? Uh, you, I mean, this is why when he dies, it will just be one think piece after another. Did you read his autobiography? Confessions? Or is that Uh, what it's called? No. Um, uh, what's it called? Uh, it's it's like it's volume one. It's um it's not chron- it's chronicles. Chronicles. There yeah. we go. Not confessions. Uh, chron- I did chronicles volume one. I'm eagerly waiting volume two. I know, me too. I it's, wanna- like, it's like the the traveling Wilburys. I can't <laughs> wait for volume three. They skipped volume two. <laughs> uh, it's an amazing book. Really great read. Good writer. Good storyteller. It tells stories kind of, it's not chronological. It tells stories across his whole career. Most of the book is about Oh Mercy from 1989, weirdly. Right. He's, he's super down on Daniel Lenoir. <laughs> right. Um, and, and, and it's hilarious. And it, it did that amazing thing, which is it made him more mysterious, not less, because of just the structure of it and how you would choose it. How do you choose to write that? The question about Dylan to me is how much of that is calculated. Well, but r- refusing to accept the Nobel Prize? I mean, it's ridiculous that they nominated him. You can see a bunch of Swedish uh, boomers, Bo- boomers exactly. who are just like, oh, we'll give it to or, Dylan. Or as we call them, the boomers. <laughs> but the idea that they would give him the Nobel Prize for literature is like an insult to everyone. It, it, it's retroactively an insult to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Is it worse than when Obama got the Peace Prize after being in office for like four months? Uh, but not as bad as Henry Kissinger getting the <laughs> Peace Prize. But, uh, but for him to... Refuse it. What, what is what is in? I guess you could say is like the ultimate honor. Is there a higher human honor than the Nobel Prize for Literature? You know, he didn't. You know, he was making noises about how he wasn't going to show up and so forth. He did, in fact, finally accept it after a lot of back and forth. Oh, he did. Yes, but it was all very fraught. Like Dylan saying he's not going to come to the ceremony. He's never going to come, uh, and. Uh, yeah, I, what is that in service of? Do you just know, want to be an outsider when you're, in your, when you're in your 70s and have a Kennedy Center honor and a... He's churlish. He's always been churlish. Uh, and that is something in our culture that we still admire. We admire churlishness if, if the catalog backs it up. Yeah, I mean, we're fascinated by the fact that we... That we're fascinated by him. We're fascinated by the fact that we don't get him, that he's a chameleon, that he keeps changing... This is the thing about Oasis, right? The Oasis came on the scene and they were all, they were pre-churlish. Um, they already had a bad attitude and they hadn't done anything. Uh, and then they made some records that, you know, that some they're would pre- argue were middling. They're pretty good. You don't like the Oasis records? <laughs> Not very much. I, was I mean, li- they're fine. I was listening to Blur on our road trip uh, last now, week. Blur I like. And I was listening to Blur and I was like, you know, I want to be a Blur guy. And there's no song on here that's as good as the, as 
you know, any song it's on Wonderwall. What's the Story of Morning Glory or Well, which one were you listening to? Like the like I had Park, Park Life. Life. I had Park Life on, which is yeah. a great album. And I really wish that I liked the songs better than Oasis songs. And I'm I'm a slave to The thing about Britpop is they forgot the pop about half the time. They made a bunch of stuff that sounded like the Kinks, but the Kinks knew how to write songs. And the and those guys kind of didn't. Park Life is, or uh, yeah, Park Life is such a Kinks record. I was, I was noticing that this time. But Dylan, back to Dylan. I don't understand how. I mean, Paul McCartney talks about when they saw Dylan at Royal Albert Hall, and I think it was Lennon more than Paul that was just like the audience was quiet. There was no screaming. They listened to him like it was a religious service. And Lennon wanted that. Because he, he had literary pretensions. He yeah. thought of himself as a poet. And so this guy's actually doing it. This guy's getting mass crowds for these dense elliptical lyrics. Right. And, and John goes home and writes Norwegian Wood, I guess. And, and, you know, they were the most famous band in the world, but it was not the fame they wanted. It was teens. But Paul didn't mind teens. He never minded teens. They were a boy band. And what Paul didn't learn from Dylan is be a little churlish every once in a while. Like, for the love of God, stop... He doesn't have it in him. Stop pandering Stop so hard. Stop doing that little ooh face, Paul. <laughs> but I should be more of a Dylanologist than I am. Do you feel like you're not? N- not nearly enough. It's given- an intimidating canon. Yes. There's, you know, there's, hundred, there's hundreds of works and fans know about thousands of more works. And you have to know all these different names and Bootlegs. dates. And, yeah. and if you, if, I mean, Dylan is the crossover artist. Like if you buy those British, um, like hi-fi magazines, or if you if you buy Sound on Sound or whatever, some some British snob music magazine, they will talk about Dylan, where they would never talk about the Beatles, or you know, or hardly as hardly would. Well, prophets without honor in his own country, you know. But I mean, Dylan is also jazz. I mean, he's also pure folk, if you want to call him that. But he's also like revolution. He's like Miles Davis of the of the three chords. So many. Uh, reinventions, right? Uh, you know, famously plugging in at the Newport Folk Festival, mm-hmm. and and today we're just like, so what's the big deal? Well, of course, of course, a couple of these songs are gonna have electric guitar, but no, that was against everything that folks stood for. Everything. And then after the motorcycle accident, kind of reinventing himself as kind of a acoustic, you know, the basement tapes and kind of a pared down rustic sound, which turns into straight up country on Nashville uh, skyline. And then those Daniel Lenoir records to re- be reborn in the 90s. Oh, but you forget the whole period where he painted his face white and did, um, you know, this traveling vaudeville show where he's driving a GMC RV around the country. So this is right on the heels of that. Uh, in the early, in the late 70s, Bob Dylan pulled off perhaps his most surprising reinvention when he became a born-again Christian. It still, it still resonates across the world. It still seems weird because you know it existed, but you're like, Wait, really? Like, as a bit? As a bit, right. But for three records, a how much, trilogy of records. How much still to this day do you suspect it's a bit? Uh, I kind of assumed it was, because he's a, clearly a guy, he's a troll. He was one of the earliest trolls. He took pleasure in finding <laughs> out what, the, what would piss off a bunch of folkies, what would make some dingus at the Royal Albert Hall yell Judas at him, and then he would do that, and he would say things in interviews just to piss people off. He was uh, capricious. And it's what you hate about him in, in Don't Look Back, that he likes to get a rise out of people. Right. And, but the thing about it in Don't Look Back, that one of the things that makes it unbearable is that you also don't feel he's quite as clever as 
he has a the pretense that he is, right? I mean, the Beatles in those interviews where 60 guys in, in uh, tab collars were shoving microphones in their face and saying like, well, the Americans are not going to like you. What do you say to that? What do you and, call your haircut? And the Beatles are hilarious. They've got a good joke for every question. Yeah, but they're also, it, they're, they're throwing it back at them. And Dylan just kind of says these cryptic things that are mean. And also, they just feel like a, they just feel like a churlish teenager could come up with that. Like, oh, well, you know, what about your mom or whatever? You know, it's just, it's not as funny as you want. Well, isn't that the guy who should find Jesus? Like, don't we need these churlish people examining their souls? I see what you're saying. Their black, black souls. Uh, he looked for, he looked for it in every kind of, of, um, of dysfunction. And then he, then he got on the straight and narrow. It was well, difficult to, so the story of, you can now, we can now reconstruct the story of Dylan's conversion in 1978. He, uh, we uh, from from, uh, from documents the archaeological the record. <laughs> well, it was all a little. He refused to talk about it. Sure, for the most part. That's and I think dealing. he was wise to do so, um, because the last thing you want from you know we say he's cryptic, but do you really want that guy being sincere and pouring out his heart? That's one of the weirdest things about his conversion. Well, now let me ask you this: Isn't one of the doctrines of being a Christian to spread the word about being a Christian? He is absolutely doing what. Uh, what a good Christian should do when he makes three, you know, maybe mediocre <laughs> records. Oh, I see. That's his, uh, that's his, his testimony. That's his testimony. Oh. And because the, the records are not subtle at all, as we will see. Uh-huh. Um, but he, his career is at a low point in the late 70s. Uh, Street Legal has been a huge flop. Um, a huge flop because it didn't have the tunes? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, you know, name Can, one song. Even if you're a Dylanologist, name one song on Street Legal. It's, it's, it's not his most fertile creative It came period. out in the disco era. Yes. It doesn't, I don't think it sounds disco. No, but, but that's the thing. It's forgettable. Disco and punk rock were moving things along. Right. You know, this was also a kind of fallow period for Neil Young, but he, he took it, you know, all the way to like a doo-wop record. And then he made trans, which was all like through a vocoder. Like he was. He could have just found Jesus. He kept moving. It's, it's much easier. <laughs> um, but I think Bob's also drinking too much. He has just divorced his wife, Sarah, and it's an ugly divorce. She claims, most likely because of his ugly behavior, she claims in one of the proceedings that she came down to breakfast one morning and he's there with the kids and his girlfriend. Whoa. With whom he spent the night. Poor Jacob of the Wallflower sitting there eating his uh, honeycomb. Just like, one day I'm going to write a pop song. <laughs> and he comes down, and I guess, I think it's this very morning, the, the, he hits her in the jaw and tells her to leave. Whoa, out of her own house. Yeah, out of her own house, in, in her telling of the story. Out of her big brass bed. So he's lost the... Lee, 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 lee. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get 
get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. So he's, uh, he's, he loses the kids in a custody battle. Uh, his, his Rolling Thunder review years end in a four-hour movie called Ronaldo and Clara that he makes with Sam Shepard, which no one likes or wants. Did you like that period? Because he wrote some epic, epic... I like Desire. Dylan songs. You know, right? Desire has... I guess Hurricane is not my favorite song. But, you know, there are good songs from that era. ISIS. Do you like ISIS? I like Mozambique. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're, we, we used to listen to them on tour... Because you could just put that record on and, and, you know, after 20 minutes, you'd be like, is this the same song? It is, right? <laughs> there is something kind of, you know. So good. You, know, you think Dylan is the father of kind of trancy music? Because <laughs> that's, that's happened to me. And I think there is something that separates me from a true Dylanologist. Because I will put on a Dylan record and enjoy it. I don't mind the voice. I don't mind the harmonica. I can see the craft in the songwriting. Um, and it really is just all seem like one kind of long song. What's cool about him is that his vocal... Um, his his vocal cadence kind of trips along and his guitar chords don't come. It's not just one, four, five over and over. Like he, it feels almost like he's changing the chords on the guitar to suit what he's saying um, rather than having his vocals follow a set huh. pattern. So it does have this kind of tumbling, somersaulting feel where you're never sure really, I mean, until he starts singing the chorus, you're never really sure where he is in any given verse or any given moment. You can't, you cannot in Dylan easily predict like, here comes the chorus, because he's doing this. And if you've ever seen him live, he does, he, he accentuates that by making it impossible to sing along, even if you know the song. Well, now. He I mean, will reinvent it on the fly. Just so crazy. That, yeah just so that nobody can know what's going to happen next. He, his live shows now are an act of like aggressive contempt for his audience. I've seen him do most of his show with his back to the crowd. Yeah. Which is... And he's just like mumbling and or sitting at the piano for the whole show. I wonder if some of the appeal of listening to those records is not unlike the podcasting appeal in our era where you just, you feel like you're hanging out with somebody. Like they're not performing. You just feel like you're kind of in the room with Dylan as he talks and scats and uh-huh. then noodles on the harmonica for a second, uh-huh. you know, like he, because he doesn't have a, vo- a vocalist voice, you know, but he, but he hits these emotional high points that, that few ever do. And he does it routinely. And, and it's just a combination of the, the sadness in his voice, the, the sort of casual, um, his casual flow and then some beautiful couplet of words where you're like, oh, well, that just killed me for the rest of the afternoon. Yeah. And he does it over and over and over again. And that, I think, is what contributes to this feeling like he's a prophet. He's a monk. He's a... He's some, he must know something we don't know. Yeah, he's a deacon in some crazy church that, that uh, he won't reveal, which made the Christian thing that much crazy. Because people wanted to know the secret. Like, he, he did not want to be the voice of a generation, and everyone wanted him to be that prophet and tell him what to do and who to vote for and what to do in Vietnam. Right. And he hated that. And the fact that he's, it's, that he's Jewish adds this sort of Kabbalic, mystical element for, yeah. for mainstream America. Like, oh, he's a, you know, he's come from, a, from an ancient line. He's a Cohen, although he's not. But, you know, like, that, that feeling that he has arrived 
through Minneapolis or through, you know, through Duluth. Duluth. <laughs> where you're like, a thriving Duluth synagogue. Say I'm what sure. now? <laughs> so he's having a hard, he's having a hard 1970s. His hard 70s, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once upon a time, he looked so fine. <laughs> he threw the bums of diamond his prime. But, you know, and in hindsight, he talks about how he felt empty. You know, the crowds were still there, but he would leave the show just feeling empty. I'm, I'm sure that's not a, I'm no. sure it's not an uncommon sentiment <laughs> for musicians. He's probably the only person ever to think that. But he happens to be at a show in San Diego in November 1978 where some random person in his telling throws a silver cross up on the stage. And for whatever reason, he just grabs the cross and sticks it in his pocket. Does it burn? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that what, is, do you think that's what happens when a, a person of the Jewish persuasion touches a cross, John? Not, I, I never touch a cross on the, just the rare uh, chance that it'll burn me. Do you think Bob Dylan is a vampire? <laughs> yes or no? Answer the question. Uh, they, see, they seem like dangerous weapons in the wrong hands. The next night he's doing, or a couple nights later, he's doing a show in Arizona and he's, it's, he's gone from bad to worse. He's, you know, in the dressing room backstage. and Still he's wearing like, the same shirt. Existential crisis. <laughs> well, same pants apparently because he reaches in his pocket and pull, fight, sees the cross and he has kind of a mystical experience. Hmm. And he says that later, you know, later describing what happened to him in his hotel room that night, he says, Jesus did appear to me and is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he did die on the cross for all mankind. Whoa. He calls it a, a knee-buckling experience. Like he, feel, like, he describes it as kind of a road to Damascus, you know, reckoning with the reality of Jesus and Christianity. Now, let me ask you this. This is a personal question. But as someone who grew up in a faith, who, a has, of faith. who has maintained that faith, have you ever had a, what you would describe as a truly mystical experience? I would say very, very rarely, and I would never, you know, and I would never kind of use that kind of knee buckling, saw the light kind right. of language. Well, you were all, you already were in the light. It does seem it's true that when you're surrounded by water like a fish, you know, maybe you're less likely to have that kind of whoa, this is a new emotion kind of thing. Because I have had that experience, a mystical and con uh, conversion experience, and it's what helped me get sober. I um, see. So yours, yours is not necessarily religious in nature. It was, though. It, there's a higher power. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the problem with getting sober and the thing that so many people who are using drugs who don't want to really get sober yet, uh, the, com the main complaint of, of um, the sort of Alcoholics Anonymous version of it is that you, it's, it requires that you believe there's something bigger than you. Which seems less and less relevant every day. Yeah, and it does, but it doesn't, it doesn't specify what that can be. You know, it could be... The Coca-Cola company. Any, anything that has a, um, that has the capacity to, to uh, share some of your burden. Something other than your own intelligence and your own will. It could be, could it be an abstract concept? Could it be Absolutely. love? Could it be a sense of oneness with my fellow man and the universe? And okay. Something just to bear some of the responsibility for the world and, and by extension, your path through it, other than just you and your, your overwhelming smartness and power. It's going to be hard for the new atheists, I think. Well, and it was, I hope they stay off the, it was stay off the hard stuff. Really hard for me as it is, I think for a lot of addicts, because, you know, you'd really do believe that you're the, you're, you're the one that sees most clearly, right? That's one of the, one of the paradoxes of being high on drugs is that you think you've got the real picture and everybody else is living in a dream or living, you know, the rest of the sheep are asleep in the world. Right. Um, and so when I had that, I mean, I had a similar kind of moment where I was just like, I can't do this anymore. And, um, I mean, almost, 
uh, almost the light from the moon penetrated the forest where I happened to be standing uh, calf deep in snow. Or I'm sorry, uh, thigh deep in snow. And it was just like, oh. And I mean, I'm not a religious person, but um, but it was it was profound and transformative. And that was the last night I ever did drugs. I feel like when I've had those experiences, like they have felt meaningful in that they have felt like not rational and coming from outside myself, but they have not been, they have been more subtle than what Dylan describes here. Well, and this can, and you're, I mean, most people I don't think are looking for a conversion from one empty, soulless plod to a life full of meaning. I think most people are like, well, there's, there's some meaning in my life already and I'm not ready to sell it all. One of the things that seems to have led Dylan from this moment of epiphany to a new lifestyle mm-hmm. is, uh, and this is maybe an underreported part of the story, that he has always apparently been very appreciative of black women. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's not really in evidence in the the women he's publicly chosen to pu- right. couple with. Apparently, he has had a series of secret relationships, even a, even a secret wife, I think, in the 80s, and a series of, of children. That Then these have all sprung from his habit of dating his backup singers. Wow. And so he's got a, he's got a, a series of relationships with backup, with, women, with backup singers who are who come from Christian backgrounds, many who, of them still practicing. In his employ. <laughs> right. Uh, in his, right. I mean, complicates wh- things. Like there's really nothing about this story that makes him look good in the fact right. that he's a serial uh, secret marrier and dater of his backup singers. But over the course of his career, many, many people presumably have told him he needs Jesus. <laughs> right. You know what? You need Jesus, Bob. And in this time in particular, he's dating a series of his kind of, you know, the 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 backup singers who sing, session singers who sing kind of gospel-inflected backup stuff on his records and in concerts. Which uh, was the style at the time. Right. A woman named Clyde King, a woman named Helena Springs. Carolyn Dennis is the one I think he secretly married in the 80s and has a child with. Do any of these women appear in the movie uh, 20 Feet from Stardom or whatever? Oh, I don't think so. But these women recommend, you know, praying and scripture to him. And I think there's one in particular, an actor, not one of his singers, but a black woman he's dating named Mary Alice Artez, an actress who says, oh, I'm going to this great evangelical church in the valley. You should come with me to Vineyard Fellowship. And it turns out somehow that a couple of his Muscle Shoals backup guys, including T-Bone Burnett, are also going to Vineyard Fellowship in the late 70s. These guys all have their their little Sunday school that they've been going to. And uh, Dylan has no intention of going to services, but, you know, one morning he just sits bolt upright at 7 a.m. and thinks... Okay, this is, uh, I'm going to their, I will go to their Bible class, okay, I guess. I'm, I'm going to Bible class. <laughs> what if he does talk like that all the time? <laughs> I think he does. <laughs> Maybe. You know, this plot line is what ruined the book A Walk Across America. There's a, there's a wonderful, there's three quarters of a wonderful book called A Walk Across America where a guy sets out from New England to walk across America. And I read it, you know, when, when I discovered the title, I was like, amazing, this is it. That you, you are a walker across things. I love this. I, you know, this was before I'd really walked across that many things. Did this help you walk across more and bigger things? Uh, it did, reading the book. But unfortunately, he walks down the East Coast, down through Appalachia, down to the South somewhere. He has a dog, like a husky dog or something. The dog dies. He's sad. And he walks past a, um, a revival church, you know, a tent revival. Or maybe he's staying with somebody and they're like, come to church with us. And uh, he does and the light comes down and it's just like the scene in the Blues Brothers where 
uh, where Elwood does the does the somersaults up the aisle, and then he immediately stops walking across America, and it becomes like a, a book about his Christian conversion. He's on a mission from God. And it's just like, wait a minute, this isn't a walk across America. The, you, like, walk through four states. Bait and switch. Oh. Oh, I hate that. This guy. So anyway. Dil- so Dylan starts going to this church in Tarzana and Bible study in Reseda, and... Uh, Did this make the newspapers? Not at the time. Not until he went public, which happened shortly Thereafter, but apparently, in his accounts of it, the the scriptures seem to mean a lot to him. Like, I guess as a as a literary person himself, and somebody who kind of sings these prophetic sounding texts, I guess seeing the original sure appears to really speak to his soul. Sure, it's like uh, it's like reading Shakespeare in jail, and he appears to take it as fact. You know that uh, well, hey, this is you know Jesus said he's coming back, so so watch out. Um, he is. Were his parents devout? Jews? More so than him. I guess he never practiced. But when his mom hears the news that he's now a, a proud parishioner of Vineyard Fellowship, you know, above a, a real estate office in Reseda, uh, she's pretty mad. But he was bar mitzvah. Yes. And I think she starts sending rabbis over to like kind of try to talk him down. Oh, wow. It's like a scene from The Exorcist. <laughs> right. Or Annie Hall, backwards. Uh <laughs> But uh, he's he's very convinced. Another thing that convinces him is these books by this guy named Hal Lindsey. Do you remember this phenomenon? What were the books? Evangelical guy who uh, in the late 70s comes to believe that because Israel has been, uh, you know, restored to Palestine, that the, the end of the world is now imminent. Oh, sure. This is still a, this is a very popular doctrine among evangelicals now. It is. And very specific, very specific, you know, he's the guy that kind of, he's patient zero for a lot of this stuff about how like... Um, like the in the vision of the book of Daniel, when there's the statue has 10 toes, that represents the European economic community. And that's the last step of the new Roman Empire before Christ comes again. This Yikes. is stuff that was all taught to me as fact on worksheets when I went to a, a Methodist <laughs> elementary school. <laughs> and I come to find out it comes from this Hal Lindsey guy who's, who's predicting that Jesus is going to come back in the 80s. Well, and this is why the Hasidim uh, live in Brooklyn and only speak Yiddish, because, because the idea of... Um, they're scared of Hal Lindsey? Well, no, the idea of speaking Hebrew as a language in Israel, that is only meant to happen after uh, the Messiah comes back. And so to do it before, to make Hebrew the state language of Israel is a, uh, is a, uh, it's haram. I didn't realize that. I don't yeah. think they would probably not use the word haram. <laughs> <laughs> what do they have? Trafe? Is that it's right? It's trafe, right. Uh, I didn't realize that, that it was a choice. Not to, Do they believe that they would actually invoke the apocalypse? Were they to speak too much Hebrew? Or, or is it just like, you gotta, I feel like gotta it's hold a, on. I feel like it's, a, it's, 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 bad, it's bad voodoo. I mean, you can, you know, you use Hebrew as a religious language, but you don't use it as a mercantile one, certainly. Be, and so Yiddish survives. It would be funny if they all had like a Hebrew dictionary, but like behind glass with like in a case of fire, you know, in case. <laughs> I think they in, all in case, know Hebrew In case of Messiah, well. <laughs> break glass. So, so, you know, there's this culture of, um, you know, how it's so important that the, 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 the state of Israel be converted, you know, that the Jewish people discover their true Lord and Savior. Oh, so this is the Jews for Jesus era. It's, it's, it's the Jews for Jesus era, exactly. And Jews for Jesus people start camping out at Bob's shows because very soon um, he starts doing material from his new record, Slow Train Coming, which is... Much to the delight of all of the fans that are there to hear Like a Rolling Stone. Rock critics hate it, and the fans are confused because... 
what happens is he refuses to do any old songs. Oh, boy. So he's got one gospel record, and he launches a nationwide tour where he only does the songs on Slow Train Coming. This is a nightmare. You're not a big fan of the part of the show where the guy says, <laughs> we're going to do a song off the new record. Hey, we're only going to do the new record tonight. We got a Christian song from the new record. Uh, well, and especially like with his Harry Krishnas there in the in the lobby handing out brochures. Handing out pamphlets. It's like the opposite of walking through Williamsburg in 2009. <laughs> in what way? There's no there's no yogurt stores. There was a period, and I think it may even still be true, that in uh, in Williamsburg and the neighborhoods in Brooklyn there that were that had a uh, concentration of Orthodox Jews, mm-hmm. the young young Orthodox guys would stand out on the street corners. And flag down hipsters because it was also it was the neighborhood was polluted with hipsters. Yeah. They would flag down hipsters that looked Jewish and say, "Are you Jewish?" And if you were, they would say, "You need to get right with God." And they'd try to convert, you know, like just innocent Jewish hipster kids walking around Brooklyn to to Orthodox Judaism. Yeah, and if you weren't Jewish like me. I mean, I had a beard. Did you? Let, did they let you go with a warning? And I would say like, no, and they'd just be like, you don't, you know, keep moving. It's just like when it's just like when you walk past somebody from the Nation of Islam, handing out uh, the newspaper. Uh, they, they they don't look at they, they're not looking at me, right? Why they're do you why do you can walk on by? Yeah, they're not they're not trying to hand one to me. Uh, every song on Slow Train Coming is explicitly based on a scriptural text in the way a preacher would base his sermon on Second Corinthians. You know, two eleven or whatever. That's an interesting literary device. And it's not um, even "Gotta Serve Somebody," which is the big hit. You know, that's that that's uh, it's a biblical text, and uh, it's an interesting song because you know this is the guy who for decades said, you know, don't follow leaders, watch the parking meters. I'm I'm not here to give you the answers. And now he's like, guess what? You got to serve somebody. I'm going to tell it to you straight now. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord. Was it a hit? It was a big hit. It was his first hit in three years. He won his first Grammy. Wow, forgot Ever? to serve somebody. Forgot to serve somebody. And was um, it was it overtly understood in the press? Had it had he already publicized his conversion and it was already a problem for everybody? And then he had a hit, or was this kind of this the way that the story got introduced? No, he he had already been very publicly Christian in his live shows and talking about the new record. And all you'd have to do is listen to the record once because it's not. The ambiguous kind of Christian rock. I was getting my hair cut with my son in a, just a barbershop in our Seattle neighborhood the other day, and we had been sitting waiting for about five minutes, and I realized that the Christian rock station was on in the in the salon. Yeah. And it, because it's just kind of a, you know, and I need you so much, you know, yeah. all these kind of generic lyrics. You're my one true love, you can't and tell you'll if always the, be there. You can't tell if the Y in you has a capital Y <laughs> or not, you know? But then I'm like, Dylan, I think these guys are thinking, I think they're singing about Jesus and not about a lady, a nice lady. Uh, I was at the state fair last summer and there was this amazing troupe of, um, of like, uh, sort of contemporary ballet. Um, it was all women and they were dressed in very gauzy outfits and they were doing this. I mean, they took up the entire stage with their, that's your favorite kind of outfit, right? Well, I like a gauzy outfit, but also they were doing this very uh, sort of sweeping kind of um, ethereal movements. Let the record show that John is mimicking this right oh, now. just back and forth I, with I feel this like I'm swoopy. There. And it was beautiful. I was captivated. And I sat in the chair and watched it. Oh, and they were in pastels. And I was just like, what am I seeing? This is, who in our world today spends this much time making art? 
that isn't ever going to be profitable, right? This isn't a thing that, that nobody's going to get famous from this, but they're incredible. Like I, I kind of imagined that maybe I would hire them to do this behind my band while I sang my sad indie <laughs> rock songs because it would be a huge hit. And I was there for 40 minutes before I realized that this was a Jesus cult and that they were doing this. Or, or Christianity, as it's called now. Right. <laughs> Do you still call, are you, are you like in the Roman Empire? You still call it a Jesus cult? But there was, some, there was something very culty about it. Like, like uh, dancers would come on and off the stage, and the ones that were off the stage were still visible, uh, both to the audience and to the people on stage, and they were doing the hands of praise. Uh-huh. Which at first I took to be touchdown. Well, and part of a part of the dance, like a gesture of the dance, because I'm not, I don't have the vocabulary of like right. how many, how high your hand has to be in the air, like where it switches from a Sieg Heil to a like praise Jesus. I just, I don't know what the angle is. Mormons are pretty low church. We don't have any of that. You don't raise your hands up in the air, no, and wave them like you just don't care because you care. I, we care too much yeah. for that kind of thing. <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. But anyway, like Slow Train Coming is, is not that kind of a stealth Christian record. Like here's, here's the lyrics on one song. Jesus said, be ready for you know not the hour in which I come. He said, he who is not for me is against me, just so you know where he's coming from. Like, Whoa. like it's not, you know, it's pretty easy to see that Bob Dylan has had a change of heart. Yeah, right. When, when those are the lyrics. Well, it seems a little bit militant, right? He's got a bandolier on. Well, that's what happens. I mean, the record is preachy in the literal sense that he has discovered something that he thinks everyone needs, and he wants them to be saved too. I think Ginsburg came backstage at one of the shows and said, man, I thought you were going to be a Christian like William Blake. <laughs> like, you know, like he thought Dylan was going to be visionary and yeah, like right, Ginsburg was kind of, Ginsburg was annoyed that it was actually, uh, yeah, that it was, it was anger and, and, uh, and what justice. I imagine that, and Judgment. we're talking about Alan Ginsburg here, not Justice Ginsburg. Not Justice Ginsburg. She was not at the show. Uh, but, um, but I, I'm sure futurelings are like, wait, 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 those are different people. <laughs> but I, I, I bet Alan Ginsburg had other things to be upset about. Great Halloween couple costume idea. Alan Ginsberg and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Alan Ginsberg and, and Christian Dillon. <laughs> but the record also has dopey songs as well. But, you know, Gotta Serve Somebody's, I think, is a solid song. It is it's, a good it's, song. It's on Dylan Greatest Hits collections to this day. But it's also got songs like Man Gave Names to All the Animals, which is kind of a children's reggae number. Sure. God gave names to, which is routinely called like the worst song in the Dylan canon. And it's just kind of a goofy children's Sunday school song about how you know, Adam saw one that wasn't too small and he wasn't too big. So he called it a pig. 
Uh, oh, boy. You know, it's exactly what you would imagine, you know, kids singing at their Christian youth camp. Kids love reggae, though. <laughs> you gotta, if there's one thing that's true then and now, kids love reggae. You got to serve somebody. <laughs> but, you know, this record gets a great review. Jan Wenner loves this record in Rolling Stone. Um, Jan Wenner, the, the, ultimate, uh, the ultimate American critic. But when, but when Dylan starts touring on this, of course, you know, it's not just that he's not doing any new songs. It's that uh, he's also doing eight-minute raps full of ap- apocalyptic biblical imagery between the songs and ranting about how all the power Satan has. How on drugs is he at this time? I don't think he is. Like, you don't think of him as a famous druggie. No. Although he surely did some... I mean, if you look at the, at the, the traveling shows of the 70s, he's pretty cocained. Uh, I wonder, I mean, maybe maybe this is still cocaine-powered. I mean, it's certainly the era for it. Right. Uh, but he definitely has a strange intensity about his beliefs. You know, his his newfound uh, idea that, that uh, you know, Christ will come back to save the Jews, like Hal Lindsey has told him, means that he's always putting down Iran because it's the time of the oh, oil the crisis, crisis and the hostage stuff. So he's always putting down Arabs from the stage and getting booed. At one point in San Francisco, he puts down, like, the homosexualist agenda. Oh, boy. Uh, you know, it's trouble. But he appears to be sincere. Like, at one point, he's in a deposition. Uh, somebody who, one of the witnesses to the Hurricane Reuben Carter um, case sues Dylan for how they're portrayed in the song. Oh, sure. And Dylan had to give a deposition. And he just, the whole thing is just him ranting about how this is now Satan's kingdom now. And Satan has power. And you can't put your treasure in the earth where moth doth corrupt. Um so the tour is kind of a fiasco. Rock critics write, you know, very uh, un- scathing, yeah, scathingly, <laughs> ungenerously about the shows. Ticket sales are low. He has to book smaller theaters, places where in London people had camped out for seventy-two hours to buy tickets the year before. Now there's empty seats. Um, when the tour starts in San Francisco, and his Bob's good friend George Harrison comes to see him, and after seeing the show, checks out of the hotel the same night to avoid having to talk to Dylan oh, after. Ouch. And, and it, you know, if uh, if George thinks your religion is too kooky. <laughs> <laughs> That's really harsh. John didn't like it either. When John heard God to serve somebody, he wrote his own parody song called Serve Yourself. Right. Which explicitly is like, hey, rock star who's found Jesus or Buddha or whatever, guess what? You know, I'll That's tell you how it so is. so John. That's pretty John. Confrontational answer songs. But nobody knew he wasn't going to do the old songs. So, you know, eventually protesters start holding up signs saying, Jesus loves your old songs too. <laughs> oh, oh, protesters. But Christian groups start coming. They're so happy. Sure. You know, they've got one of their own now. And this is this is before Christian rock was a thing. Yes. So they've got nothing in the popular sphere. Christian rock now is a huge business, a billion-dollar business. Big industry. Do you remember the movie they made about how your favorite Christian rock song got written? There's some... There's some, I just saw a trailer for a movie last year about the story behind the song that changed 100 million lives. Hmm. And I'm like, I have never heard this one or whatever this Christian rock classic is called. Because it's, it's really big, but it's behind a paywall. It's in its own little, yeah, <laughs> behind a paywall. <laughs> Baptism's not a paywall, John. <laughs> <laughs> so Dylan plays these shows to stun silence. Uh, you know, the, the, maybe applauding Christian church groups next to just old-timey fans that just wanted to smoke up and are now pissed sure. that he's not going to do like a Rolling Stone or Masters of War or whatever. People out there are banging their tambourines and the, the old crusties are right. like, get me out of here. The promoters are just begging him for one old song and he won't do it. And, and in fact, like there's a whole, you know, for the middle of the show, I think he leaves and there's six 
six gospel songs performed by the backup singers, you know, several of whom may be sleeping with the, with the closing <laughs> act. And, you know, people just start, people boo them every night. I've already been to church. Well, now, is there not a Dylan song that he could own? Didn't he write, I mean, he was always writing sort of cryptically in a way that could be interpreted as mystically. I mean, that's the weird thing about folk. Uh, you know, in the in Europe, folk ballads are mostly about, I don't know, about sex, right? It's always, oh, when right. I went riding on the heath, right. I found my true love, jingle, young, jingle, young jingle. Molly McCready, right. or whatever. Or uh, about putting down the, the Lord in his castle. They're all about uprisings for the common man. American folk is generally about how the working class is, gonna, is going to uh, take ownership of the means of production. Thank you goodness, some yeah. one of these days. But it, but it's also religious, right? Because it's been tinged by oh, spirituals, you know? Sure. So you've got all your Michael Rowe, The Boat Ashore. And in fact, the first Peter, Paul, and Mary record, the first Simon and Garfunkel record, these all have classic spirituals on it. They have Go Tell It on the Mountain and uh, This Train is Bound for Glory on them. But it was done not in... It was done in earnest as an appreciation of the musical form, but not... Not out of, of devotion, You right? never really get the sense that Paul Simon is like... Right, <laughs> right. Go tell it on the mountain. <laughs> it is weird now to listen to those guys sing, say that Jesus Christ is born, which we think of as like kind of a Christmas carol. Um, but you know, but there is a rich religious tradition in folk that he, that he could have drawn on. I think from his earlier albums do have some of those uh, traditional folk and spiritual songs. Right. But I guess he thought I'm in, like it's mostly symbolic. I'm a new person, right? Like I've I've been washed in in the blood of the Lamb. I I, I I'm a new person, and so no, like this is Satan that wants me to do the old stuff. I'm not I'm not that guy anymore. I having said, actually washed in the blood of a Lamb, I can say that it's not as great as it sounds. That's how Ringo Starr stays young. Yeah, well, <laughs> like when he, that stuff dries. Bleh. He said, "I don't sing any song which hasn't been given to me by the Lord to sing." So he kind of felt like he's been inspired. Well, what's interesting is that a, that a lot of songwriters, and I think probably Dylan too, if you really scratch the surface of it, you know, we all credit um, some kind of ether for our best songs because they're... Where did they come from? Yeah, you often sit down at the piano and you write one of your best compositions in the space of time it takes to put pencil to paper and you go, what the heck was that? I almost had no, I had no um, input in it at all. It just came out. It's not problem solving in any way. No, you're not like, hmm, how should, how do I go to the chorus? It's right. just like kapow. And, uh, and it's not uncommon at all for a songwriter to say, well, that's just, you know, it just floated down. The song already existed. All I had to do was pull it down from the sky. And I'm sure, I mean, I've never heard Dylan talk about that, but, you know, the Lord gives us every song to sing. Well, that's not true. Some of them I really work hard on. Well, it feels like the Lord gave him better material in the early 60s <laughs> before his conversion. Boy, I'm telling you. Uh, the the succeeding, so there, he he records three full-on gospel records, well, much to the consternation is, of CBS. This is exactly, that's a very good point you just made. If, if the Lord wants to get his message across, well, you, you know, three-minute pop songs, buddy. <laughs> like, that's what I like about you by the romantics. <laughs> that's, <laughs> if that was about Jesus. Like, Goffin and King are my disciples, not Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he records two other records, Saved right. and uh, Shot of Love, which are are not classics. They're kind of, hap with the exception of Every Grain of Sand on uh, Shot of Love, which is just an amazing kind of, one of these kind of hymn-like songs that feels discovered, like you say. Yeah. Um, they are not great. They are kind of haphazardly made. 
the stories of him in the studio. I mean, Slow Train Coming has Mark Knopfler on it, which is funny. He didn't know he was going to be doing a gospel record, but he oh, got he really? got roped into this. You want to work with Bob Dylan? Yeah. yeah. But Slow Train Coming, he just makes with some of his session guys and his girl groups, and and he doesn't seem that interested. At yeah. one point, he just disappears for four days, goes to Laguna Beach, leaves the band just sitting in the studio. He's just walking around with a hoodie on, peeping in people's <laughs> peeping windows. Peeping in windows of Laguna Beach. He, uh, he just, eventually the monitor mixes from the day, you know, at the end of the day or end up on the record huh. because the producer keeps wanting to like, you know, clean everything up and make it, you know, kind of tweak it and make it sound nice. You know all the terminology yeah. there. That's, that, you said it just perfectly. That's exactly what musicians <laughs> the, say. The producer wanted to tweak it and make he, it sound nice. He want, You know, he wants a more polished mix and Dylan's like, no, yeah, we're going to use the, the monitor mixes. Yeah. You know, he doesn't want to. He's not, he's he's mercurial, that guy. Um, and Or a dick, as we've also <laughs> suggested, is another way to put it. And he leaves off songs like Caribbean Wind, which, you know, would would have been an actual great song on that record. But in the live shows, he starts mixing in oldies again. Oh, that's nice. And so what happens is even though his, his uh, conversion is overnight, his kind of return to non, his return to secular music. Slip sliding away. It's gradual. Yeah. yeah. It's like a rolling stone. You know, it's, it's, it's a slow move. And he never actually Renounced. repudiates hmm. his religious years. You know, as late as the nineties, he'd get asked about it. And he'd be like, oh no, to me, to me, Oh Mercy is kind of a gospel record. He says, music should aim for the soul, not the groin. I think you can hear the gospel influence in Oh Mercy. Huh. So he's, um... You know, he never said, yeah, boy, what was I thinking? But maybe you wouldn't. No, that's not Dylan's way. Well, it's, it's not the human way to be like, oh, boy, I sure got snookered by Vineyard Fellowship. No, I, I, I confess all my mistakes. <laughs> is that, is that, <laughs> you're a confessional musician, but Dylan yeah. is not. Right. He's, uh, he's cryptic, you know? Well, but, but I, I feel like maybe coming to an understanding that you are not the genius, you're not the boy genius of the world, which I think he probably labored under for many years because everybody that he met told him that that probably is transformative. If you can, if you can stick with it and improves the quality of your life. Maybe that's what he kept with him. Um, it's certainly true that, you know, this kind of material does not play to his strengths. You know, he's, he's a poet, right? There are shades of meaning and subtlety. And when you're writing songs called property of Jesus, where you've got a, you know, where you're essentially a pitch man, You've got a message to get out there. Right. I mean, that, you know, that, that doesn't, towards the end, a song like Every Grain of Sand is spiritual without being, you know, uh, unsubtle, I guess. Yeah. I mean, the great spiritual songs are about someone who is lost, not what the secret is to getting found. I mean, you know, lost and then found. Yeah, these songs are not reflective at all. And I, th and I think maybe that's, maybe that's what's missing in them. I'm not the Dylanologist I feel like I should be. And to look at his mid to late 80s imp, uh, output, like he hooked up with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers sometime immediately after this. And I think got reinvigorated in rock and roll because Tom Petty loved him so much. And he had this, you know, the Heartbreakers at the time, one of the great backing bands. Yeah. And he found the stage again and he found the big, he found big music again. Oftentimes, uh, it, it really is Tom Petty that ends up saving a person. My religion is Tom Petty. I think you're not alone. And that concludes Bob Dylan's Christian Period. Entry 138.AC1631 
certificate number 39323 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are all great places for you to post your own Dylan-related material and thoughts. Tell us what we got wrong. That's what I, you know what I love? is when dedicated fans <laughs> of an artist. <laughs> if you disagree with Ken's or my opinions about Bob Dylan, please write a long, involved letter in cursive. Send us copies of your Dylan zine. And mail it to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Uh, you can go to our tweets, which will be Dylan Free, presumably, at Omnibus Project. And you can go to at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick to read our tweets, which are probably going to have some Dylan content after this episode airs. Uh, you can also go to my Instagram account and see what kind of sexy business I'm up to. Is that, is that what it's for? Rawr. No, it's usually just taking pictures of manhole covers. That's sexy business. Yeah. Depends on what kind of manhole, I guess. Thanks. Oof. Hit that bell for me, will you? Why do I have the bell? There we go. I think it's the first time I've ever done that. Yeah, that's good, though. It, it, feels it does good. feel good. Yeah. Especially to reward your own bad, dirty joke. Someone sent us, by the way, Someone. this is from the P.O. Box. Someone sent us this new bell because I think they were mad that the bell had disappeared. New old bell. Yes, they bought it from an antique store in Olympia, Washington. They also sent us a picture of their great-grandfather delivering mail on a like some kind of motorbike in let me, 1912. Let me, let me tell you what kind of motorbike that is. Oh, boy, that's even before... No, that's uh, that's probably some early Harley-Davidson, right? He doesn't know. Wow. He says, my great-grandfather was a rural mail carrier in Selah, Washington on a Harley, Indian? He doesn't know. Uh, but he Sela, said, It's Selah, Washington. Oh, How long Sela. have you lived in this state? I never have to say it. Oh, right. Uh, but I've driven through it, so I guess I said it wrong. It's Sela, but my cousin Sarah in the 80s changed her name to Sela. Because she went to Yale and decided that she needed to punish her parents for something. She, but she, she spelled it the Hebrew way, S-E-L-A-H? Yeah. So she's, and the thing is, like, we have family that lives in Sela, so that's where she got the name, but she pronounces it Sela. But the town is Sela. And I didn't mean to characterize my cousin's adoption of the name Sela as something she did just because she went to Yale and wanted to punish her parents. I'm sure she had other motivations. That's probably a huge part of it. Sella, if you are listening to the show, uh, I, I, I apologize. Although you did insult my piano one time, so. She hasn't gone back to Sarah? No. Okay. Well, this person also, well, this person sent us the bell that he found at an antique shop in Olympia. He says he doesn't know the provenance, but you're pretty sure. It just, it's from it, the it game. It comes to the card game Pit, It's right? from Pit, yeah. <laughs> And that one has faded, so it's nice. It's nice. It'll, it will find a place of pride in our show. It is a beautiful fiesta wear kind of orange. Yeah. Futurelings, you may also, or I suggest you do, go uh, onto Facebook, which by the time you are waving your sentient fronds, Facebook is probably the one world government and religion. Yeah, you, you probably had a Facebook account when you were born. Uh, go to that self-same Facebook and join the Futurelings which is a ribald group of enthusiasts. And, uh, and add, your, add your tentacle to the pot. We appreciate their input. And you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization is likely to survive. Uh, Hal Lindsey was wrong about the early 80s. 
but he's still alive, so I'm sure he's still hoping any day now. We hope and pray that the catastrophe that Hal fears may never come, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word to you. But we sincerely hope that Providence will allow us to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.